Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Today on Addressing Alaskans, Black in the Military in Alaska. Good afternoon, I'm Ammon Swenson. On today's show, we have a community conversation from the Alaska Black Caucus. We'll hear veterans speak about their experiences in the military. But first, let's revisit an interview I did last year with University of Alaska Anchorage professor Ian Hartman for the program State of Art. His book, Black History in the Last Frontier, covers the long history of African Americans in Alaska from whalers who left New Bedford, Massachusetts, to soldiers who helped build the Alcan Highway. I'm wondering if there's, you know, any individuals who you maybe discovered through your research or maybe found more about that you think uh, deserve some recognition. Oh, there, well, there's there's lots. Uh, you know, again, I think you you go through if if we start back, let's say in the in the days of the gold rush, I, the the guy, one of the men I was talking about, uh, Saint John Atherton, was one of these guys who made it in the gold rush, who was quite well known. Uh, go back to early Anchorage's history, a fellow by the name of Thomas Beavers, who was um, one of the co-founders of what would become the, become the, the for rendezvous. It invested in a piece of property on what is today M Street, where they first held some of the some of the early fur auctions, as uh, as we were getting on into into March and everything, and and that's the direct descendant of of the fur rendezvous. And Thomas Beavers was also the first paid fire chief of a- Anchorage, Alaska, uh, mixed mixed race uh, man who came up right around the the ni- late nineteen teens or twenties and was really one of the one of the civic fathers of Anchorage in its very early years. Um, can talk about the, the the role that women have played in uh, in Alaska history, specifically black women, which just blew me away. Uh, more recently, you've got figures like Mahala Ashley Dickerson, who was this who was a homesteader, but also the first um, black attorney in Alaska who had this remarkable career in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen sixties and seventies. Uh, Zula Swanson, Zula Swanson was this really impressive figure who came up in the nineteen thirties and was around right through the early nineteen seventies. She was at one point among the wealthiest people in uh, in Anchorage, arguably the wealthiest, depends on the source that you're looking at, before the oil boom really hit in the mid-70s. Um, but, you know, she actually owned the property around what is today Goose Lake. Oh, wow. And, uh, and Zula Swanson ran a, a bunch of businesses, some of which, you know, we, we would we would think of as above board, some of which were maybe kind of catering to a certain clientele. But that's part of the history at this point in time, too. Yeah. And, and if I'm not mistaken, didn't she help other African-Americans acquire property yeah. as well? She kind of was helped pushing back against some of the, uh, you know, segregation in like these neighborhoods and stuff. She, she was. Yeah. And, and so Zula Swanson's a really pivotal figure for a couple reasons. One, just because of how successful she was up here. And for another was because she she did have a foot in the door of the of the uh, white business community. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the business community in Anchorage. Uh, then, as I suspect it is now, as it is in most American cities, is dominated for the most part by by white men. And here you have Zula Swanson, who had who had again developed some some properties in downtown Anchorage and had become a real institution. Uh, she was someone who was able to, I think, shepherd a lot of uh, recently arriving folks in Anchorage through this. Uh, through this network of people who, you know, otherwise they may not have had access to. So I think someone like Zula Swanson becomes this really significant intermediary um, just by virtue of, ha- of her having been here, having had a number of successful business ventures. 
So let's talk about some kind of specific things regarding, uh, you know, black history in Alaska. So what did segregation in Alaska look like? Was it any different than anywhere else in the United States? You know, I think that the, the obvious point to make here is that Alaska's demographics are going to be very different than other places in the country. I mean, the, you know, the Alaska native population was the, the largest numeric population of people right through the first decades of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so if you're looking at it, maybe what I would call a, a traditional model of segregation, where you're likely to find that are going to be in some of the white settlements that are really focused on keeping indigenous people out for, uh, for the first several decades uh, of uh, white set- settlement in Alaska in the 1860s and 70s and well into the 20th century. When it comes to African-Americans, what you'll find are patterns of housing segregation that usually revolve around uh, restrictive covenants, which also, of course, would include uh, Alaska natives in, in certain instances, would have included maybe people of Asian descent, basically non-white people, broadly construed, wouldn't have been allowed to maybe live in certain neighborhoods or subdivisions in Anchorage, and the same would have been true. You can find evidence of this in Fairbanks and certainly in Juneau. Restrictive covenants, which are simply that, you know, when you when you go to buy a house, you get, you know, a deed or title to the home. And what would have happened would be upon signing that deed, you would or covenant you would uh, you would agree to not sell if you were to go and resell your home that you would not sell to anyone but the Caucasian race or the Anglo race. So, you know, I mean, the, the language on these might vary from covenant to covenant, but the basic idea was by entering into agreement to buy the house, you would basically then agree to a set of terms to sell the house. And so uh, you would not be able to buy a home in a certain neighborhood unless you looked a certain way. And then upon buying that home, you would not, you would basically agree that you would keep that home in uh, the hands of white property owners. Whereas restrictive, uh, excuse me, whereas um, redlining, I think, gets a little bit more into how uh, the federal government is going to back certain types of insurance policies through the banks. It's a little bit more of a convoluted system that involves uh, federal intervention, I guess. The, rest- the restrictive covenants are tied into that system, to be clear, but they're kind of um, a bolster, I guess. Yeah, it seems it. a little bit more obvious. It's a little more blatant, I guess, maybe. Yeah, yeah it, it very truly is. Uh, and the interesting part of that is that the the Supreme Court had uh, had put down some rulings that actually made it illegal um, that just go totally ignored. You know, mm-hmm. So the re- restrictive covenants are actually, uh, they're, you're, you're not really supposed to get away with these really after the late 1940s, but it's not until the 1968 Fair Housing Act, uh, a real central piece of legislation in the Johnson administration that there's any enforcement to them. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, this period of time, what I, you, know, you might think of as almost like a, there's this gray area in the law between the you know, late 1940s and the late 1960s where technically speaking, restrictive covenants are, uh, are not completely legal, but yet they're also not, there's no way to enforce the level of segregation or the level of uh, discrimination that occurs. Mm-hmm. So let's maybe talk about the uh, relationship between, you know, black Alaskans and the military and maybe kind of how some of that has kind of tied to the uh, building of the Alcan Highway. Sure. So the uh, what I guess what, to go back to your question about what 
what is similar and what is different about Alaska and its demographics and patterns of racial discrimination or, or patterns of openness even. One thing that I certainly think is different in the case of the African-American community is that you do see, like many others in Alaska, a very sizable percentage of people who came here because of the military. Um, everybody who lives in Alaska, I think, knows somebody or has a family member or uh, or maybe they themselves have come up here through the military. And, uh, and so what you see in World War II, and to a much lesser extent, World War One. I. I mean, World War One, you've you've got the 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 Alaska Railroad in a lot of ways is is built to help assist in that war effort. But certainly in World War II, you have uh, this enormous influx of people coming into Alaska, and it, this is a segregated military at the time, and so there was a real uh, hesitancy on the part of uh, white military commanders to allow African Americans to. Um, to, to enter roles of combat. They suspected, actually correctly, that if they were to provide African-Americans combat roles, this would bolster the case that uh, African-Americans could make for full citizenship and dismantling Jim Crow and all this other stuff. Uh, and so as a result of that, you have a lot of African-Americans who end up in Alaska in, uh, in performance roles, in a sense, or what we might think of as... Um, Service roles, I guess, would be the best way to put it. Mm. And the the best example of that is the Alaskana Highway, where you know, this is an endeavor of, of almost 10,000 troops, uh, about 40% of whom, depending on where you're looking at on the road, are African-American. You know, well over 4,000 troops uh, of African descent are directly involved in building the Alaska Highway. Not only that, they're involved in building what is by far the toughest stretch of the road. Uh, they do so without the the mechanical equipment that the white troops had. This was a, a, a tried and true trope of uh, of Jim Crow of the Jim Crow era. This belief that black men were more bestial than uh, than their white counterparts, and as a result, they didn't need the same type of equipment and they could withstand these conditions. And so, you see the way that they're talked about in these, you know, frankly, explicitly racist terms. Uh, and yet, these uh, these men very much so participated and persisted, and are responsible to, to this day for having built and designed and, and constructed and punched through the wilderness um, this several hundred mile stretch of road. And, and they did it in just eight months. This is a road that people would think would take years and years to build, and uh, and thanks to the their, their efforts, they were able to make it passable. I mean, it, this was it was for the military in its early years, but then you know within a few years, it opened up to civilian traffic. And uh, and at the time, it was oftentimes referred to, particularly in the interior of Alaska, it, it was called the, quote, Negro Road, uh, a, a moniker that has fallen out of favor for, for obvious reasons. But, uh, but it is important, I think, to remember the contributions that these men made to, to what is this, uh, you know, iconic piece of American history. Yeah. What kind of pushed you in that direction of being interested in kind of looking at some of these, you know, social structures of racism and stuff like that? Yeah, it's a great question. I uh, I find that is somebody again interested in American history. This to me is is the topic that you know, arguably at least as much as any other topic, or arguably more so, that tends to surface time and time again. I mean, if, if you look at what has at times divided the nation, what at times has unified the nation in ways both, I would argue, good and bad, I think you tend to find 
uh, issues related to race and immigration. Uh, I think you, you see that very much so today. Uh, you would have seen that 40 years ago. You have seen that 100 years ago. You would have seen that 300 years ago in a lot of ways, even before the United States was a nation in the colonial era. Uh, I think that the way in which people negotiate their identity, the way in which race has been mobilized as a force to uh, uh, write laws, for example, as a way to construct uh, property relations, all kinds of things. I think that what you find studying this stuff, going back to the documents, is that it's been, uh, again, arguably the central through line through American history. Uh, of all the kind of topics and stuff that you touched on with this book or throughout your research, what are you most proud of uh, now that it's finally done and available to the public? What I think I, I've really taken away from this study is that there are stories right here in this community that you actually aren't going to find in the archives. You've got to talk to people and you've got to got to allow, I think, communities to steer the direction of that history. You know, I, I may have my own ideas of what I think is, are going to be the most important topics about what I think are going to be the most important things that people need to know. But, uh, but if you don't have that community input, if you don't actually engage with the people around you that you're writing this history about, then it may turn out that you're completely wrong. And so I think it's been a really humbling experience for me to write a history that has just kind of teared me out of my comfort zone in a sense that has really forced me to reevaluate how I conceive of my own discipline. And that's been a really rewarding experience. That was my interview with UAA professor Ian Hartman from last year about his book, Black History in the Last Frontier. It originally aired on Alaska Public Media's State of Art, which airs Friday at 8 p.m. on KSKA. Now, let's begin with the Alaska Black Caucus's community conversation about being black in the military in Alaska. Good evening. Thank you for joining us this evening. My name is Celeste Hodge-Grouden, and I am the president and CEO of the Alaska Black Caucus. The Alaska Black Caucus is a nonprofit organization that champions the lives of Black people in the areas of health, economics, justice, and education. Tonight, we have another great conversation in store, Blacks in the military in Alaska. You know, that's how my family came to Alaska. My father was in the Air Force, and I'll never forget 6981st Security. Also, I'll never forget his social security number because that's how we were recognized in the military. If you didn't know the social security number, you were just out of luck. Leading our discussion is none other than Mr. Ed Wesley, past post 34 commander of the American Legion. Thank you very much, uh, Celeste. And I'm happy to talk about uh, the military because I benefited from the military. And if I had to do it again, I would uh, do it again. I'm gonna just quickly talk about a few things high pointing some of the military service over the years that people may not know about. And then I wanna acknowledge a couple of uh, brothers here in Alaska who, who, uh, who served uh, in, in the military. First, I want to say that it's almost like, a, it's, it's almost a myth about the Revolutionary War. African-Americans compile 10% of the men that fought in the Revolutionary War. And we must always remember Prince Hall who fought alongside George Washington and was in that lodge and formed the oldest black organization in America, which is Prince Hall Mason. Uh, next, I would like to highlight the Buffalo Soldiers. The Buffalo Soldiers who were commissioned by Lincoln in 1866, they fought gallantly in the Spanish-American War. The territory of Cuba, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, we can somewhat contribute that to African-Americans. 
there were five Medal of Honor winners from the Buffalo Soldiers in that war. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt had the Rough Riders, but it was the Buffalo Soldiers that saved the Rough Riders at San Juan Hill in uh, Cuba. And lastly, as I uh, talk about a little bit about that history, I want to mention Dr. Charles Drew, what he did in World War II with the, uh, the Blood Bank and the Blood Mobile, and also Garrett Morgan, who uh, invented the gas mask. So that's kind of a, on the uh, international scene. So locally, I want to acknowledge Parnell Lockhart. Parnell Lockhart, who is in the museum down in Kodiak, served in the Territorial Guard in the 50s. He served nine years. His brother has received has received was the recipient of the Congressional Gold Medal because he was one of the Marines that served at uh, Montforth Point when the Marines were segregated from 41, I believe it was 41, up until uh, uh, Truman uh, desegregated the uh, the military. But Jimmy Lockhart received the Congressional gold medal and we will get uh, Jimmy's information and his brother and begin to uh, highlight and post their information at uh, American Legion Post 34 because most people are not aware of uh, their contribution. So with that, I would like to open it up so that others may share some of their experiences. I had a, a, a relative good experience. I was up at uh, Fort Greeley, uh, uh, Alaska. And uh, I understand before that post was opened up, all of that uh, operation was in Kodiak, Alaska. So um, let me just, uh, I see some people uh, on here. Uh, let me see, Simon Brown, would you like to share? Thank you, Ed. Um, and that was, uh, I'm ashamed to say that I didn't know about uh, Mr. Lockhart, since I'm the commander of the Defense Force, which is a takeaway from the Territorial Guard. So I'll be looking for information on him to put in my office. I'm Simon Brown. I'm a colonel with the Alaska Defense Force, retired Army officer. I just started my 47th year in uniform. There's a lot of things that blacks in the military in Alaska have done that has gone unnoticed, but there's a lot of other things that blacks have done um, that's unique for us in Alaska. I was the first one to lead an Alaska Guard Force in the comeback out of Alaska. I was also the first black out of Alaska to, to lead a multinational force in a war zone. And there's other blacks I know in Alaska who have done similar things for Alaska and all over the world. But what I would like to, what I point out to get across is a lot of Alaskan black youth will not join the military to guard or anything else. The way you make changes, the way you prove to the world that we have the knowledge, the abilities and the ambition and the patriotism that everybody else has is being involved and being at the table. So I like to encourage all of us to encourage blacks to get involved. And there's a lot of ways you can do it. Active military or the Alaska State Defense Force. And not only that, other things, we as blacks must get involved. As you saw what happened in Washington DC yesterday and what's been happening all over the country in the last 12 months. We must come to the table. We must be a decision maker. We must be sitting there. And the military is an excellent way that I found that I could be at the table and I've been blessed by God to rise to the rank of Colonel. So I'm at the table, I'm a decision maker and I can make some decisions. So yeah, so I just like to encourage us to come to the table, get involved. If you don't wanna be active duty and travel over the world, which is a great opportunity, 
I'm sure Ed Nebes can tell you, being in the military, you get a chance to travel over the world, Germany, France, England, all over the United States, and many other parts of Asia and stuff of the world, and everything is not a war zone, but it's a great opportunity to learn. In the military, you are induced to so many different uh, careers and professions and different kinds of people. And I think most of us would agree at 18 years old, most of us don't really have an idea what we want to do. And the military is a great way to figure that out. But also, again, I emphasize, it's a great way to be at the table, be involved, be in the ranks, and become decision makers. We have a lot of young black men in Alaska who have rose to the rank of sergeant major and first sergeant. Those are decision making uh, positions. So encourage our young black girls and boys to join the military. And just uh, finish with some side notes. You get you can get education paid for. Your college can be paid for through that. You can pick up a career that's paid for by Kasam. So I encourage us to get more young blacks involved in the military system. And whether they do it for one stand of four years, uh, make it a, a career of 20 years, uh, they are mentally insane like I am and stay around for 47 years. I think it's a great way to be at the table and have an impact on what is happening in the world because it's not real good right now. And it's, it's detrimental to African-Americans what's happening in America right now. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Colonel Simon Brown. I see another uh, officer that uh, served and uh, Nate Rivers. Nate, uh, can you share some comments about uh, the military, your experience? Hey, good afternoon. I, I, uh, first of all, uh, thank everyone for uh, joining this uh, discussion tonight. And um, thank you, Celeste, for inviting me. And, um, but uh, just to kind of share some uh, brief uh, history from my time as you know, 30 years of um, serving on active duty. Um, I had a chance to see the world, if you would, but I, I would uh, also, you know, be remote miss if I didn't kind of point to some of the people who have came through Alaska here during my time, uh, black officers who are significant, if you would. Uh, I'll start with just General uh, Garrett. Uh, some of you may have remember him when he was a USARAC commander. Uh, he's now a four-star general, but uh, he was probably the first black two-star that came through here. Uh, you know, I spent, like I said, four tours here. So I got a chance to see a lot of uh, current, and I, and I don't want to say, I say current compared to the history, but I, I, I do want to point that out. We had Khalif Wright who came through here uh, as a uh, medical uh, Air Force guy who was over the hospital, but he, he himself uh, most recently was the chief Air Force uh, officer of the entire Air Force. I don't know if anybody knew that, but he, he recently retired, but he that, you know, he re retired from that job as a chief of the whole entire Air Force. Uh, so we've had some significant black uh, military people who've came through uh, Alaska and done uh, exceptionally well. Um, I, I would share a brief history with just two in regards to myself. I remember when I came to Alaska as a young Lieutenant and I, you know, eventually obviously made it all the way up to Lieutenant Colonel promotable before I retired, but it was not actually an easy time, I put it like that. It was not an easy time, because when I got here, um, I was probably one of three black officers walking around on Fort Richardson. And the communication in terms of having somebody who looked like you to tell the stories you were going through, the issues you was facing, it was not easy. Um, but in about four years, uh, black officers started to come in. Uh, then I had an opportunity to kind of share uh, my issues and concerns but by that time I was kind of well known through the officer ranks on Fort Richardson. So we have 
you know, built our way up. And I think as some of Simon, as both Ed had said uh, previously, uh, I, I do think the military does offer an option for black kids to kind of take an opportunity up because the opportunities right now is abundant in terms of uh, what you can get out of it. If you, you can get more to the military than the military would give to you if you know how to get it. I eat those, all those GI, I put my two daughters to college pretty much on the GI Bill. Uh, all those things are significant things. And I think sometimes people look at the military from a side, from a side view, oh, I'm not gonna do that and I don't wanna do that. But uh, I would tell you, it offers just as much as the opportunity uh, to become a part of history, be history, and leave your legacy too as you go through it. But again, thank you so much for me to be able to share a brief uh, moment of our history with you. Thank you so much, uh, Nate. Most of us may not be aware. There's an image that is presented, but that's not who we are. Blacks have fought gallantly throughout history and all the just about all the battles that they have been involved in. The Buffalo soldiers received 18 medals of honor. A medal of honor, I believe we got one in Alaska. Uh, at least we did have one, Drew, Drew Dix down at home. But a medal of honor individual is similar to, uh, when, we, you, when we talk about Tom Brady, we say the GOAT, greatest of all time. Well, a medal of honor will be above that because that is someone that put their lives on the line. And so when they receive that medal, they get, they don't pay any more taxes for life. They get free, transpor free transportation in the military for life. A general have to, have to salute a Medal of Honor recipient. A general have to salute him. And so I experienced that when Dix came in our post and everybody, he said, stand up, stand up. And I was like, okay, everybody had to stand up. And why we had to stand up? He's a Medal of Honor. So when they enter the room, there's a lot of respect that's given to him. So that was 18 in the Buffalo Soldiers. So let me move on. Don, were you in the military? Don Roberts? Yes, sir. I was Navy 78 to 88. Yeah. So, and and you might share a little bit more about what, what Kodiak and tell us your experience. Well, um, I, I was shipboard. Uh, my, my experience was like peacetime. I, I got, I got in between conflicts and stuff like that. Um, but I can tell you, you know, I have my regrets. I didn't take advantage of all the opportunities I had. And I can tell you, if I had done it, I had saved a lot more money, um, gotten a better education than I did. I do know you can go through and probably get your entire bachelor's degree while you're in the service at the expense of the military um, and you have to do it. Yeah, I, what I would like to see happen, I'd like to see more people joining the service. And I, and I think, and one of the hard parts I think for, for um, folks of color is, is getting mentors in the service because I do know there are a lot of problems in the service sometimes with racism, and it's hard to pick out who the, who the problem, problem people are. But yeah, you do need mentors and you need to find out who they are. Um, so that does need to happen. The education, leadership uh, opportunities are there, see the world. And you get to see the world from a different place, from a different way. You know, you're not going out and seeing the hotels and everything else like that. So yeah, I think you're... Uh, I, I, it's there and you had the opportunity to rub elbows with a lot of different people and different kinds of people. Thank you very much, Don. Uh, Cal Williams. Yes, my induction into the military began, you know, like with seeing my grandfather and father's pictures on the wall uh, 
in my upbringing. I'd like to talk about if we would uh, consider military people, us vets, sponsoring troops, Boy Scout, Girl Scouts, do they still have Girl Scouts or are they all now just called Scouts? But we need to do that. And we'd have an early introduction uh, in our youth in the acceptance of that kind of thing. In addition, it would give them life skills and how to operate out in the woods and survive and shoot things and skin things, etc. And also if we had open house out on the base and allowed the youth go out there and sit in an airplane, talk with a pilot, etc., walk through the buildings and see, you know, some open access and allow our youth to be exposed to it because a lot of them, you know, have not had any contact with military. We don't have the giraffes. So therefore, if you're not drafted, you don't volunteer. And lastly, I'd like to extend as chaplain of post 34 of uh, Chappie James uh, American Legion, an invitation to all vets to join us, become a member of uh, Chappie James post. Thanks, thanks, I'm out. <laughs> all right, thank you much, Cal. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, uh, Nate. Uh, General Chappie James was the first four star? Uh, he was. Yes. So. That the post uh, American Legion post, which was uh, started back in 78, and uh, the post is named after him. Uh, he retired and never received a paycheck. <laughs> he died before he received his first re retirement check. But uh, we are honored to uh, keep his name alive uh, through, the, through the post. Uh, I don't know how tall he was, but they said he used to kind of fold up out of that cockpit. He was a big guy, tall guy. Do you you recall how tall he was, Nate? No, I can't guess that one. <laughs> yeah, but he would come up out of that uh, that cockpit. They said they would say, "How did all that man get down in that cockpit?" <laughs> but uh, General Chappie James. So at this time, I would like to know: Do we have anyone on this active military at this particular time? I'm not seeing any hands, um, Ed, but I do know that we uh, have Don Bunt Buntent here, Buntick here, who um, yes. we've, we've invited to share. I, I'm gonna try to lean it over to some females, some women now. We've heard a lot from the yes. men. Let's, yeah. let's... <laughs> of course, I, I, those, I, I was only calling them the faces I could see. <laughs> oh, okay, well, I'm yeah. here to help yes, you. That would be great, that would be great, most definitely. Don. Yes, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so very much for inviting me, Celeste. And yes, I was in the military. I was in the United States Navy Reserves here in Anchorage. I was stationed on J-Bear, Fort Richardson, and I was a ship, uh, ship serviceman three. I was able to learn how to cut hair. I learned how to work in the ship store and just do a lot of the administrative things in Navy Reserves. But being on Fort Rich at the Navy Reserve base, I was also attached to uh, ammunition unit out of Indian Island Port Hadlock. And so I didn't get to do everything that I was assigned to. So I learned how to be an ordnance handler and an explosive forklift operator and a phase three blocker bracer handler. So I learned how to build bombs and torpedoes. I learned how to um, drive forklifts up to a 10K. And I just loved my experience when I was in the military. I served for 10 years and it was such an opportunity because I was a military brat as well. And my dad was in the Air Force. And so when I became 
got into the military, I was, I got in pretty late. I was pretty late, like 29, because I was so used to having the military benefits. And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I need to keep my benefits because having a military ID was like an American Express card. You don't leave home without it. <laughs> and so um, I did get married. And, but my husband, he went off to uh, different places. And so I actually raised my children as a single parent. So I, that's why I joined the United States Navy Reserve because I still wanted to have that connection. And I just love the experience that I had um, because it gave me um, leadership opportunities. It also taught me how to be self-sufficient going into the realm of being a single parent, even though I was married. And so it was a great opportunity for me. And the experience I had here on Fort Rich was great. And, but I would have to fly every other weekend to go to Indian Island, Port Hadlock in Washington to load the ships, to um, put together bombs and torpedoes. So my experience was great. My children, and I'm sad to say this, when 9-11 hit, we had to be ready. We, I had to leave my two-year-old and we had to go to Indian Island, Port Hadlock. It was within 24 to 48 hours. And I was so scared. And, but the military got you ready for that. You had to have all your paperwork ready, your will, everything. And so we went to Indian Island, Port Hadlock and I'm kind of a person that loved to stay in hotels. They made us sleep on the beach because we, it, went, it was so fast and we had to load the ships with the bombs and torpedoes. Now that was a very trying time, 9-11. And I was like, I don't wanna do this anymore. <laughs> so, but like I said, it was a great experience. And when I came back from that 9-11 experience, I was telling my children, and I, like I said, I hate to say this, I did not want my children to go in the military because they were gonna train our children to go to Afghanistan and just go off to war. But then after a while, I was like, you know what? This is a great opportunity to serve. I got my house on my VA loan and so forth. And so once I transitioned, because I still was working for the state while I was doing my military service as well, but it was a great opportunity. And I would say, um, if you want to join part-time, the Guard and the Navy Reserve and the Reserves are great areas to go to go into and we can get our children into that so they can get a taste of it at least. And you can still get the full experience because I got the full experience in the Navy Reserves going so much flying out of the state of Alaska. So that was my experience. And like I said, it taught me how to go into leadership positions. And then I became the Department of Alaska Veterans of Foreign Wars for all the auxiliaries in the state of Alaska president. So I'm still serving for veterans and helping veterans in my capacity because I'm, I'm a veteran as well. So thank you. That's my experience. And I say, go Navy. Thank you so much uh, for that, your contribution and uh, your military service. We saw a uh, video when we started and talking mostly uh, about the uh, soldiers that built the Alcan Highway. In 92, we celebrated uh, that, I believe it was the 50th uh, anniversary. And uh, there was some individuals from Fairbanks that went to that place 
where that exchange took place with between the white and the black soldiers. They went there in 72. And uh, we had a person from Juneteenth uh, that was from Mississippi. And he, he traveled there too. And Betty did some uh, acknowledgement in the legislature. But since then, before that acknowledgement, uh, Jean, Dr. Jean Pollard has picked up the uh, baton. And so I would uh, uh, ask her to share with us about uh, her work and also Senate Bill 46 that uh, authorized the uh, commemoration of their work. First of all, okay, thank Nate, because Nate, uh, he's the one, thank you, Nate, I appreciate it. My niece, you know, you're talking about young people going into the Air Force, the military, whatever. Well, Nate, I think for the help you gave my niece, she is, you know, that she's stationed in the Fort Worth, she's a lieutenant now. So thank you for that, Nate, got that out. And for my dad, I want to share with my dad, uh, we came up to Alaska in 1968. However, way before I was born, though, my dad was here in Alaska in like 1940-something. And he uh, was one of the ones in the Army was um, in charge of the Barrage Balloon Department, where he was explaining to us how he had to, they had those, but they, it looked like a, those, what do you call them, like a big balloon, like a, anyway. And so the Japanese, they would not, uh, or they tried to shoot in then it would blow up their planes. And that's what my dad was in charge of when he, back in the 40s, way before we were born. Anyway, I had to throw that in. Okay, now for you said Alaska Highway, that's what you asked me, to, what got me involved, the main thing, to be honest, is for um, years, as far as, for like 30 something years, as an educator, elementary, middle school, and high school, this is the key fact. When we got to, uh, I was at service, what really happened that they had us um, to teach, we, we, I'm an English teacher, and they had us, all the English teachers, we had to do, Huckleberry Finn, and you know on Huckleberry Finn how the term that was used pretty frequently that was negative with um, Huckleberry Finn. Then when we got transferred to Hanshu, the middle school, it was Sounder, and it was a lot of racial things in there. And I decided that you know I wanted something positive about blacks in Alaska to teach for the students to learn, and that's how I actually ended up really getting more involved with this. And so by the time, basically we started this and stuff then i knew another thing that we were i wanted in the school and there's no way they were going to put this in the school unless uh it was become a it became a law and that's the reason why we went through that part working and once they actually then had it we had to put into a law then we were told now then we can put it into the school and we have been doing that every in-service day and that school's not in now i know but after that we were teaching the only the history teachers were moving around. So I'm excited about that, to get this history, you know, about the soldiers and just in general. I mean, there are other people I know out there, like, you know, going through Blanche Mack Smith and all, all of the others, you know, that's before us. But that's why I wanted to share it, um, as far as with the Alaska Highway, how the act of, is actually is SB, was SB 46 in an act of establishing every year, October the 25th is African American uh, soldiers celebration to build an Alaska highway. And that's something now I'm really happy about that the students, they, they got to learn this where before it was, you know, you didn't know anything about it. Well, in school, that is. <laughs> Thank you. Ed? I see uh, Elaine Williams. And, and while she's um, trying to make the decision, you know, I have a question that has really been on my mind and I've heard a lot about it. Um, I shared earlier that my father was in the Air Force 
um, retired after 32 years or 22 years, because you can retire after 20 years. And um, I just wonder the experience of discrimination, racism in the military, if someone can speak to that. How, how was it then? How is it now? Um, did you see that, any of that or, or just what your experience was or is? Oh, so let's just assign this assignment. Over 47 years, when I came in, it was there, it was open and blatant. The, the difference now is it's become sophisticated racism and they have learned to use different words and different actions, but it still exists and exists because of, the, in my opinion, and someone else can speak to it, is because of the low numbers that we have, um, but it's still a battle. Even being at the table, I'm confronted with it constantly and stuff at all ranks and stuff. So there's still, a, in my opinion, still a big problem in the military. So may have a different opinion. And so Nate, I see that you came off mute. Yes, uh, I just want to caveat that what Simon uh, has stated there in terms of uh, sophisticated uh, racism, uh, which is a unique way of putting it, but uh, true, as Simon said. The key thing about it, what I, I've kind of noticed in terms of uh, just racism, like as Simon said, unless you are at the table, and when I say at the table, at the table mean you have to be in a command position to be able to uh, deter it. Because if you're not at the command table to deter it in terms of a leadership position, it will go rampant in your unit. Uh, those who are have an opportunity to excel would never excel. I, when I as a commander, um, I, I was in a unique position where I sat at the head of the table as a commander, company commander, and a battalion commander. Therefore, I had the opportunity to make sure every soldier, you know, who had the opportunity to get promoted or get moved up the rank, got promoted up the rank. And I will tell you uniquely. That does not happen unless you know you're in position to be able to dictate dictate those progress. So, is there when we're going to get rid of it? Uh, I can tell you, I don't know because uh, as you just seen recently on the attack on the Capitol. Well, uh, they were active duty military people who were involved in that, uh, which you would think they should not should have not been there. But uh, that's my take. Anyone else? Just raise your hand and unmute yourself and speak to it if you'd like to. Hey, this is Don again. Well, I experienced it um, pretty much how they, uh, Nate, uh, Brother Nate was talking about, but for women, it was when we would do our um, taping and weighing in and doing our physical things that we had to do, women, because of course we have our babies and everything, our body shapes, and especially African-American women, our body shapes are different. And I challenged them because some of those standards were on not African-American build. They were built on um, Caucasian standard body types. And so when we would tape and when we would get uh, weighed and so forth, we were always overweight or out of, out of line with the, the standards that the military had. So we were always put on programs, but I could, we could pass the test, we could pass all the tests, the running, the jumping, all of that, but because our bodies were differently built, that we would be downgraded. So that was one aspect in the military that I experienced is, as well as being in the ordinance, building the bombs and torpedoes, they thought that I didn't have that knowledge or experience to know how to do that. So when I went into the magazine to do that, Everybody looked at me and like, why are you here? Are you here to clean? No, 
I'm here to do the same thing that they were doing, building bombs and torpedoes. And so it was a shock, but like I said, I still love the experience, but once I realized that I was there doing the same thing they were doing and building the bombs and torpedoes, um, they started to want to say respect me as a team in that ordinance division. So but those are the things that I've experienced. Ed, did you want to respond to that? I want, I want to acknowledge Joe Lewis's uh, contribution. Joe Lewis was a boxer, heavyweight champion, gave a lot of money to the military. But this country have not, have not honored our contribution in the way that they should have because of what we had to endure once we came home, once we went out and, and won and helped won for this country. And then we had to return and face hatred and that kind of stuff that you saw in the Capitol. We had to go through that, and especially if you were in some of those little Southern towns. And so we must continue to uh, fight for that recognition, but we have to tell our story because if we don't, others will tell a very negative story about us. And for example, when you uh, hear about the West, most individuals are not aware that the Buffalo soldiers were the one that was really opening up the West. There was 18 total, they had a total of 18 Medal of Honors winners among the Buffalo soldiers. In 1903, they were, they were really acting up down in Skagway and they brought the Buffalo soldiers into uh, Alaska to maintain the peace because those were some bad dudes back in the days, the Buffalo soldiers. And those names, and it's sad, that's the sad part about it is that we had to fight or they fought against the other uh, native people. That, that was the sad part of that uh, in order to escape the, the slavery and join something where they could get out of slavery and uh, the Jim Crow the system, they had to do that. So with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Celeste. So thank you, Ed, for that. And again, I just, uh, the question about whether or not our kids should follow in the footsteps of those that have served. I've heard comments about um, the need for them to be exposed and the great experience that they'll get and the benefits from serving. You can buy a house, I think I heard, or and all these other great things. But what I walk away from is, the, is again, the, the, the racism, is it, is it, you know, you've got racism on this hand, but then you've got opportunities over here and you weigh it all out. So I think I'm hearing that it's more beneficial to join the military than the, 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 the weight of the racism and discrimination that's ongoing. So Nate, I see you took yourself off mute. Yeah. I, I, I would say Celeste, the, the one unique thing about what you just said is, is, is it is true, but the, the lower end of that spectrum is, is if we don't fight our way through that, we will never get through it. It's we can either sit on the sideline and say, "Okay, I see racism and I and and I don't want to deal with it," or we can get engaged and just fight through it. Obviously, there's going to be some people who have to pay the price for others to follow behind, and that price never seemed like it's been it's been paid up or ever going to be paid up. But we got to continue to fight, 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 and keep going forward. And hopefully, uh, you know the racism piece will subside or uh, we will get see get our our rewards if you would to be able to stand equal beside our counterpart okay so i see cal has taken himself off of mute and i do know that we have lieutenant colonel rosalind cole 
who is ready to share some comments as well. So Cal, you first, and then we'll hear from Roz. And I'll be brief and, and talk about the yin and the yang of the military. The military is far beyond regular life in terms of benefits for all people and African-Americans have certainly um, the benefits of that have been mentioned, such as education, health care, loans and stuff are great. You've got a, a you got America, people coming from everywhere in the military. Mississippi, my uh, my TI was from Mississippi, a white man, but he treated me. He treated us and the unit fairer and with less yell than the black TI who was on us. The black TI was trying to prove or had to prove that he was going to be, you know, tough. And, and it, it benefited because it taught, made us tough. I got hurt and went into the hospital and was in there for like two weeks. And I had a chance to elbow with generals and everybody else who had broken legs just like me. And the conversations that we had put in my mind that when I go back into this unit, I'm going to know that some are good, some are bad. I just got to know the good and the bad. But yes, Celeste, uh, there is racism in the military. There is great opportunity in the military. And, and indeed, we need to start training our youth through Boy Scouts, et cetera, to get ready to do that. Thank you, Cal. Roz. Well, good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to see my fellow comrades as well as my fellow Alaskans. I grew up in Anchorage, uh, went to Ptarmigan Elementary, Clark, and then to Bartlett. And then I went on and I see uh, Mrs. Sears is on here, who I received a scholarship through Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated to Howard University. And from there, I joined ROTC Detachment 130. Why I bring this up is because we were a family in Alaska that was a military. My dad worked for FAA, but we went to Bartlett and Bartlett basically had Army and Air Force. And everybody just thought he was, he was a military kid. So it was kind of interesting. But <laughs> when I went to Howard, my sister, Robin, who's on the call, she basically was in college in California. And my brother, Danny, was in college in Alaska. So we had three in college at the same time. So I actually wanted to go on to get a higher degree. So how could I do that? So I searched the military when I was at, I wasn't planning to join the Air Force at all, even though my dad was a tech sergeant and came up to Alaska and did the do line in the fifties, Lloyd Cole, many of you might know him, but basically I said, hey, this might work. And so I did, I scored very high on the AFQT test, which meant, oh, we want you to be a pilot. I don't even like roller coasters. But anyway, long story short is, I became a controller. So I controlled aircraft for 10 years. And actually before I got out, I was an instructor on that plane that's on the runway at Elmendorf called the Airborne Warning and Control System, the AWACS. So I was the first African-American female to be an instructor there. We, I was stationed in Tinker and then I'm, I'm a Desert Storm veteran. So when I came back, proud to say my daddy basically gave me a life membership to post 9978, which I am still a member. I'm also a member of uh, American Legion, Post 34, DAV, and um, AMVETS, and so it goes on and on. I say all this to say that I'm very proud to have served this great nation, and it really bothered me what our president did for the last four years. So I'm not trying to be disrespectful because he still was the commander in chief, but I'm glad that I was retired because it would have been kind of difficult for me to give him that salute, okay? Because it was an embarrassment being a war veteran and I served for 26 years. I recently just retired, which is great. I served on active duty and in the reserve. And so I was actually stationed at Elmendorf. I was the IMA, um, Individual Mobilization Augmentee to the hospital administrator at the old hospital. 
So um, I remember the head, the head uh, chief master sergeant was Capehart, who I think is still there in Anchorage right now. But I wanna also want to share one last thing when you talked about racism. And we talked about General James. I did my paper on General James. I just thought he was all that in a bag of chips. And you, you guys failed to mention when he was in Libya, he used to have these pearl handle pistols on. He used to carry it on his waist, okay? Because nobody messed with him. He was over 6'5 to fit in the F4. I flew on an F4 and I flew on an F15 before. Uh, and it is kind of tight in there. But the other thing I wanted to share was I was stationed at McCord. Now it's called Joint Base Lewis McCord. And there was the Northwest Air Defense Sector, which he at the time when he retired, he was over NORAD. There at Elmendorf in the middle of the base, you have the Bach building. And I used to control planes, fighters in a similar building on um, McCord. Anyway, when I was at McCord, not only was I controlling aircraft, I was over our air surveillance. I was over our data link systems, linking up with the Navy, whoever wanted to link up with us. I was the base basketball coach, which they wanted me to be the Air Force coach. Uh, when I was in Alaska, I played a little bit of sports. And basically I did a whole bunch of community service with my sorority. I was working on my master's at that time, the Air Force paid for it, but I couldn't make officer of the quarter. Why was that? There was only two black female um, controllers on that, on that whole base. And then like when I flew on the AWACS, there was only three of us. First of all, the washout rate to be a controller is very high. Long story short, the Colonel, he was real tall, looked like my grandmother. I came in the building one day and he said, Roslyn, why do you look so sad? I said, sir, I don't know what I have to do just to be nominated like that. And then my colleague who was another female, she said, don't worry about it, Rosalind. We're just here on, on, at Elmendorf, I mean, at McCord and we have the fighters. Nobody likes us because McCord is a heavy base. So we're never gonna win. So it don't even matter, right? I said, it matters to me because I'm working hard here, right? Trying to be a contributing factor to the community and the Air Force base. So anyway, Colonel Shanks, he went and he told my supervisor, he said, Colonel, and he said, Major, get in here right that. Next thing you know, he comes back and he tells me, Rosalind, write that up by the end of the day, right? And I did, right? Okay, that same um, lady, female officer, she said, don't worry about it, Rosalind. First of all, you're not gonna win and you're not gonna win for the base. And I was like, you know, take that player Haitian somewhere else. You know, I, I just know who I am, right? And if you guys ever read General James's history, he talks about leadership. He talks about, you don't wanna be the black leader, you wanna be the leader. And you wanna do all things for all people. Long story short, I won for the base, I won for my squadron and I won for the base. And on top of that, the, the white captain who told me, she said, she, she was sitting right next to me. Colonel Shanks made all the officers go to the club for this. We never hardly ever go, right? But he must do something. And man, our general, because we had the general because we were NORAD and man, I gave that serious salute. And when I came back, she basically said, I'm sorry, Rosalind. I really didn't know. And I, so for me, that was systematic racism. It doesn't matter how much we try. And even in all the things that I've did in my career, because I'm retiring too. I mean, it's just amazing what we have to go to. So I think it was Cal and maybe Nate talked about mentorship. And that is so important so that you know you can be all that you wanna be. You can do whatever, just go for it. Thank you very much for this time. It's a pleasure to see all you guys. And hopefully I'll be back home in the <laughs> summer, but I like coming to Anchorage in the winter because all the real Alaskans are there in the winter. Peace Thank you. you. Thank you, Roz. Nate, I think you put something in the chat. Did you wanna? I, I want to kind of just expand a little bit uh, quickly before the time run out. There is a branch out there, many may not know of it. It's called Public Health Service Corps, Commission Corps. And I think uh, 
Jean just spoke of it. Her, her uh, nieces are in it. And my, my wife, I won't take the credit. My wife kind of did uh, the process. My youngest daughter is actually in Public Health Service Corps. But anyway, that branch, many Blacks don't know about it. But I will tell you, it offers tremendous opportunities for you to go and join it. At, you know, you, you, you got to be a college grad. You got to be in the field of medical, uh, engineering, pharmacists, uh, vets, uh, social social uh, work, but I, I would encourage you to look that up on your internet thing, Public Health Service Corps and Commission Corps, because uh, I think we are, when I say we, we are, as Black Americans are missing an opportunity. Thank you, thank you for that, Nate. And we're about out of time. I'm gonna turn it back over to Ed, who will turn it back over to me to close out. But Ed, did you wanna share anything before we, I think there was a question in the chat too, I'm sorry, Anna. Yeah, there was a, a question about what uh, the panel members thought about um, renaming bases that's been up in the news lately. I'll, I'll take that one. Go ahead, Ed. We need to start right here on Fort Rich. Buckner Fieldhouse, General Buckner was the one that caused those soldiers in the 40s not to be able to enter the town, the little town as they worked there. He was a racist summer gun and we got that and we have that building named after him over there. But going further, those uh, the, 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 those with the Confederates' uh, names, I definitely think that they 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 should be be removed. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Is, is that your final comments, Ed? Um, yeah, I just want to thank all of the all the all the uh, comrades that, that uh, came in and 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 shared their story. And it was anyway. Uh, th that's what that's that's about it. I want to thank all of those that did come and participate. Thank you for that. And I also just want to share that my daughter is actually in the Air Force. She's a dental hygienist. And um, so I'm very proud of her. And I just want to thank our hosts and thank you uh, for joining us this evening. So until next time, good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. You just heard a community conversation from the Alaska Black Caucus about being black in the military in Alaska. If you missed part of this show or want to hear more like it, head to the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.